please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, verses 25 to 33. That is our scripture reading this morning. I'm sorry. I hope I said Luke 14. If I didn't, I meant Luke 14, 25 to 33. That's our scripture reading this morning. And our sermon passage is 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 24 to 42. 1 Samuel 20, verses 24 to 42. So again, Scripture reading, Luke 14, verses 25 to 33. And sermon passage, 1 Samuel 20, 24 to 42. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Please give your full attention to it now as it is being read. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now turning to our sermon passage, 1 Samuel 20, verses 24 to 42. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. 
In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you because it is a feast for us. And we're grateful that we can feast on it each and every week, each Lord's Day and indeed, O Lord, every day of the week as we delve into your word, as we read it, as we study it. We are thankful to you for the nourishment that it provides, for what it teaches us about you, for what it teaches about how you save your people, how you preserve and protect your people, for what it teaches us about how you establish and build up your kingdom, and how you are even still at work calling people to become citizens of your kingdom. We pray, dear Lord, that you would teach us now as your word is preached, that you would lead us, that you would instruct us, that you would illumine our minds and continue that work of transforming our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would use the preaching, the teaching, the reading of your word as an instrument in our sanctification. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, it's been a few weeks, but you probably remember that when we were considering the first half of chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, that as we were looking at that, we saw that David had found himself on the horns of a dilemma. After what happened in chapter 19, after Saul had come after David, trying to kill him, does David now, after that crisis, at least in one sense, had ended, does David go back to the king's table, does he go to the feast of the new moon and risk Saul trying to kill him again? Or does he skip out on the feast and risk angering Saul even more? Now David, as we recognize, he doesn't know at this point what Saul's thinking is. The last encounter that he had with Saul was when Saul came up to Nioth and Ramah and he tried to kill David. And Saul, you remember, he joined in among the prophets of Samuel and began uncontrollably to prophesy right along with these prophets. Well, in order to help David in this dilemma in which he finds himself, he has devised a test which will help to determine Saul's disposition toward David. Jonathan will go to his father and tell his father that David had to go to Bethlehem for a feast with his family. 
And if Saul reacts supportively, if Saul's positive about that, if he understands why David has done what he does, then David can rest assured that Saul no longer intends to kill David. But if he reacts angrily, then Jonathan will know that Saul has, still has murderous intentions. Now, there was also the problem. Not only did David have to discern Saul's intentions, but he also, there was also this problem of how Jonathan was going to convey to David the news especially if Saul still intended to to murder David, uh, the news of Saul's reaction. But Jonathan came up with a plan to overcome that obstacle. And we saw that last time. On the third day after the feast, David is to go to the place that he had hidden himself. He's to to go beside a, a heap of stones and wait there, laying down in the grass, hidden. And Jonathan will come there with a with his servant boy and he's he will shoot three arrows to the side of the heap. And then he will send a servant boy out into the field to retrieve those arrows. And if he shoots the arrows beyond the boy, uh, I'm sorry, on the near side of the boy, and shouts to the boy to tell him, it will be safe for David to return. If he shoots arrows beyond the boy, past where the boy is standing, then David will know that it's unsafe for him to come back to the king's court. And now in our passage this morning, David's and Jonathan's plans are carried out. They're, They're implemented. Saul is put to the test. But as we'll see, Jonathan and David have tests of their own. As we work our way through the sermon this morning, I would ask you to keep this in mind, that the son of Jesse, who is David's greater son, establishes his kingdom by calling, out sinners, by calling sinners out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. Again, the son of Jesse who is David's greater son, establishes his kingdom by calling sinners out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. The sermon is divided into three sections. The first section is titled, A Seat at the Table. The second section, Test Time. And the third, The Kingdom to Come. Again, the first section, A Seat at the Table. The second section, test time. And the third, the kingdom to come. So let's look at the first point of the sermon, a seat at the table. The stage is now set. The feast of the new moon has begun, and the king sits down at his table to eat. And by his side, as verse 25 says, Abner is seated. Abner was a general in Saul's army. He was first introduced at the end of chapter 14 or 15 of 1 Samuel. And then uh, we see him again at the end of chapter 17. He's sitting at Saul's side, probably his right hand, the the preferential side of the king. And Abner would have been one of the many men, only a few of whom were generals, as Abner was, who had refused to go out and fight against Goliath. He gets the seat of preference. David had a place at the table, but his seat is empty. Verse 24 has already informed us that he was hidden in the field, awaiting Jonathan uh, to come on the third day of the feast. And verse 25 in the ESV says that Jonathan sat opposite his father. But if you have another English translation, it might say something different, something to the effect that Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side, implying perhaps that Jonathan gave up his seat for Abner. We need to note here, and some of you who have the ESV, you probably see this in a footnote, that the ESV is following the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. 
The Septuagint indicates that David was seated, and later, uh, rather, Jonathan was seated, and later we'll see that, that Jonathan arises after Saul says such terrible things uh, later on in the chapter. But the, the original Hebrew says that Jonathan stood opposite his father. Now you would expect Jonathan to be seated right beside his father. Saul was a suspicious man. His back was literally against the wall, preventing anyone from sneaking up from behind. Some of you, you may choose to sit, seat yourselves that way in a restaurant, right? You don't have your back to the door. You've got your back against a wall so you can see what's going on. Some of you may do that. Others of you may not be so concerned with that. But that's the way that Saul was. He's a suspicious man, and he's got his right-hand man beside him. In this case, it's Abner. David's place at the table was empty, and empty it would remain. What happens in just a few verses ensures that David will never return again to Saul's table. Incidentally, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is given a a place at David's table. The only two places in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel where the word table is used at all are in this chapter, in chapter 20, several times in chapter 20, and in 2 Samuel chapter 9, where Mephibosheth is told by David that he will have a place at his table forever. Now, as one commentator writes, for David, there will no longer be any place at Saul's table. He must flee. Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, however, will have a place at the table of King David, a permanent place, moreover. Now, David's absence from Saul's table was conspicuous, but he chose not, Saul chose not to say anything about it on the first day of the feast. But he did wonder about it, and we're giving, given insight into his private thoughts about it. Verse 26 says that Saul thought someone has ha- something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. This was an affront to the king. David's place at the king's table was empty with no explanation given for his absence. Except that an explanation ought to have been unnecessary. Saul had just recently made an attempt on David's life, another attempt on his life. And so it should have been obvious to Saul, had he been in his right mind, why David wasn't there. And the only plausible excuse that Saul can come up with was that David was ritually unclean. He had done something that had made him unclean and therefore could not celebrate the feast of the new moon. He had to be ritually pure in order to celebrate such feasts. On the second day of the feast, Saul could no longer keep his thoughts to himself. And so he asks Jonathan, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And in asking the question, Saul puts himself to the test, even though he doesn't know it. And that takes us to the second point, test time. The easiest, most plausible answer would have been for Jonathan to confirm what his father was already thinking, that David had become ritually unclean. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that Saul would have accepted that answer. And Jonathan doesn't know the inner thoughts of Saul at this point. But the ruse that David had constructed and that Jonathan would convey to Saul was designed to be just implausible enough that it would require goodwill toward David on Saul's part to overlook the implausibility. That's why it's a test. 
It can't be so very easy for Saul to believe the reason why David is gone, but it also can't be completely preposterous why David is not at the table. It's just implausible enough. If Saul has goodwill toward David, he'll believe it. He'll accept it as a a good excuse. In verses 28 and 29, Jonathan answers Saul's question as David instructed him back in verse 6, but he gives a few additions. He says, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. How does Saul react? Does he buy it? No, he is instantly angry. He chose not to believe his son First he hurls insults at at Jonathan, and then he hurls his spear. Verses 30 to 31 say, If you, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. In his rage at Jonathan, Saul speaks insultingly of his own wife, Ahinoam, who had nothing to do with this. But Saul's main concern, his his, his chief desire is exposed in verse 31. As long as David is alive, neither Jonathan nor his kingdom will be established. Jonathan will never be king if David continues to live. But more importantly for Saul... And this can only be inferred from the passage. It's not, it's not explicitly stated in the passage. But more importantly for Saul, he doesn't get to have a dynasty. His kingdom will die out with him if David is not killed. Saul has taken the test. And now Jonathan knows which way the winds are blowing. But now Jonathan, in a sense, faces a test. He passes it, he aces the test, but he's faced with a little bit of a test. Saul says, as long as the son of Jesse is alive, you will never establish your kingdom. Saul is holding before Jonathan the prospect, the promise even, that he will get to have his own kingdom. Who does that remind you of? Didn't Satan do the same thing? To Jesus, bow down before me, and I will give you everything that you see. It will all be yours. Saul's essentially doing the same thing to Jonathan. He's holding it out in front of him. If David stays alive, you won't get to have your kingdom. But Jonathan, unlike his father, isn't interested in establishing his own kingdom. He knows God's anointed the future king. And he has no desire to be a king and to have a kingdom. He wants the Lord's anointed to have a kingdom. Saul is kind of like us. He's like we are according to our sin natures. He sees the Lord's anointed as a threat to his kingdom and he wishes to destroy the Lord's anointed. He wants to take David out. But Jonathan is like the ideal apostle, the ideal disciple that is implied in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. The person who would be Christ's disciple must be willing to give up everything that he has in order to follow Christ. 
That's exactly what Jonathan is doing. He's abandoning any efforts to assert his right to the throne. Jonathan is giving away everything that he has, even his relationship with his father, in order to follow God's anointed. A covenant had been made between Jonathan and David, and Jonathan would not forsake that covenant. And so in response to his father's demand that Jonathan bring David to him so David can be put to death, Jonathan says to his father in verse 32, why should he be put to death? What has he done? What has he done? Saul's response didn't come in words, but by means of a weapon. Verse 33 says that Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. So Jonathan then knew without a doubt that his father would never stop trying to kill David. And Saul's hatred for David had made him try to kill his own son. Saul now so closely identified these two men, David with Jonathan, that killing Jonathan became an adequate substitute for killing David. Now at some point, Jonathan had sat down at the table because verse 34 says that he rose from the table in fierce anger. Perhaps Jonathan had taken David's seat at the table. Jonathan rose in fierce anger. He ate nothing the second day of the feast because of his grief over David and the fact that his father had disgraced him. And that leads us to the third part of the sermon, the kingdom to come. Now that Jonathan knows his father's intentions regarding David, he has to carry out the second part of the plan, which was to let David know. Verse 35 says that the next morning, which would have been the third day of the feast, Jonathan went out to the field for his appointment with David. He brought along a servant boy as planned, and he told him to run out and to find the arrows that Jonathan was about to shoot. Jonathan shot one arrow at least beyond the boy, which signaled to David that Saul still intended to kill him. He yelled to the boy that one of the arrows had gone well past him. That, that would have been enough to let David know. And then the boy, when he had gathered up all of the arrows and he took Jonathan's bow and his weapons, Jonathan sent him back to the city. And then once the boy was gone, the coast was clear. There, there was no chance of, of David being seen and this meeting uh, being observed David came out of hiding. And verse 41 says that David rose from beside the pile of stones and he fell on his face to the ground and he bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping most. We don't need to infer anything more than what the the text says. These men were best friends. They'd fought together. They'd fought for each other. They'd made a covenant with each other that each was unwilling to break. Jonathan had given up any attempts at establishing his own kingdom to have a place for himself and his family in the kingdom that was to come. And so he tells David in verse 42, Go in peace because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and my offspring and your offspring. Forever. Now this isn't the last time that Jonathan and David will see each other. But they don't know that at this point. They don't know if they will ever see each other again alive. They hope so, but they don't know. This may be their final farewell, but they can depart with confidence because of the covenant that they have made with each other. 
And after Jonathan's death, this is the reason that Saul's son Mephibosheth ends up at David's table after Jonathan's death, after the house of of Saul has been completely wiped out except for this one grandson, the only remaining uh, descendant of of Saul, the son of Jonathan. Jonathan, Rather, David upholds his end of the covenant when he invites Mephibosheth to be a part of his table permanently for the rest of his life. Jonathan and David know that each has the other's back. And they trust that the covenant won't end with them. It will continue down between their offspring for generations. But it's almost as if Jonathan understands that there is a greater kingdom to which David's future kingdom merely points. And as it turns out, Saul's line, Jonathan's line, will die when Mephibosheth dies. Jonathan says that Yahweh shall be between him and David and between his offspring and David's offspring forever. It has echoes of the covenant that that the Lord will establish with David. You see, Jonathan has been around long enough to know that earthly kingdoms, kingdoms built by human hands, they don't last forever. He's the son of of a king whose kingdom is destined to be dismantled, and he knows it. He's the one who theoretically could stop it, humanly speaking. But Jonathan has hitched his cart to David's kingdom, which has not yet come. But he trusts that David's kingdom will come, because he trusts not so much in David, he trusts in Yahweh, whose name he invokes. Jonathan knows that David is Yahweh's anointed. And so Jonathan is proving that he may be Saul's son, but he is a citizen of a kingdom that is yet to come. Jonathan will die before David's kingdom is established. Jonathan will be long dead before the kingdom to which David's earthly kingdom points is established. But Jonathan has no doubts that this kingdom will be established. And at a very basic level, Saul has understood this. That's why he tried to kill his own son. Saul hated the Lord's anointed. He will kill anyone who stands in the Lord's anointed's place or sits in his seat. Well, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of this world hates the Lord's anointed too. We need to admit that we here in in this land, we haven't suffered too much yet. But there are many of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering right now because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Because the world around them knows that they are not primarily, essentially, citizens of this earthly kingdom. They're citizens of heaven. And our brothers and sisters are being persecuted and condemned to death in some cases. You see, the world so identifies Christians with the one that it hates that it directs its hate at Christians. If the world hated Jesus Christ, it will hate you as well because you are identified with Christ. Just as Jonathan was identified with David. But remember this, that Jesus Christ 
has identified Himself with you. How has He done this? Well, He did so in part. We could say the chief way that He did so was by taking up a human nature. He was baptized, in a sense, for the remission of sins. It signified His repentance of sins that He would never commit. And in so doing, He identified Himself with sinners. But He also identified Himself with you and with me by taking your and my sins upon Himself on the cross. He became your sins. He became my sins. And in so doing, He suffered the wrath, the penalty that is due to us for our sins. And He did so, brothers and sisters, because of this. Because He, as God, as one person of the Trinity, He has made a covenant between Himself and all who call upon His name in faith. And just as Jonathan could say to David, go in peace, we can know that we too are at peace with the Lord. Even though the kingdom of darkness may be at war with us, we're at peace with the Lord because we have been called into God's kingdom of light. So that no matter what happens to you or to me, no matter what kind of trials or tests we may face, we can trust that the Lord has our back, that He is beside us, that He is before us and behind us, that He guards us and protects us because He has made a covenant with you and me and He has kept, he has kept our end of the bargain for us because we could not keep it for ourselves. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> Oh Lord, we thank You for Your kingdom. Your kingdom that we love. We thank You that You have called us to be a part of it. We thank You that we who are sorely tested in this life, O oh Lord, that we will be seen through to the end because we are in Your hands. We thank You that Jesus Christ has identified Himself with us and that He took our sins upon Himself on the cross. That He endured the wrath and the penalty that was due to us for our sins. We pray, O Lord, that You would remind us that we are citizens of Your kingdom. Even though we temporarily, momentarily live as citizens of this kingdom. We pray that you would remind us, O oh Lord, that our treasure is with you in heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength for that day when you call upon us to forsake all else for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>